Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. In the midst of the fury and horror of World War II, a secret war was waged in the towns, cities and countryside of Europe. Spy games respected neither borders nor neutrality, and the agents that played them knew that if they were caught, they'd be first interrogated, probably tortured, and then either shot or hanged. The spies of World War II took on assignments that made hearts hammer and palms grow sweaty. But two of them in particular took them on with such cool-headed swagger that their exploits resound with heroism and adventure. Virginia Hall was a Gestapo-swerving, jail-breaking, one-legged hero who supported the French resistance until it was finally time to get out of Dodge. Dusko Popov was one of the inspirations for James Bond, a Serbian playboy and womanising double agent who could have changed the course of the entire war. Both of them, and all Allied spies like them, fought a different kind of war to the men flying Spitfires or storming the beaches of Normandy. But it was all in the cause of the liberation of Europe from Hitler's Nazism, and their contribution was just as dangerous and just as great as any soldier, sailor or airman. So welcome to this, the first episode of the new series from Bite Size Battles. Secret Warfare, The Spies of World War II. Popov. Dusko Popov. Everyone knows James Bond, but it turns out that Dusko Popov was pretty much the real-life thing. Popov was one of Ian Fleming's primary inspirations for James Bond, the only real difference being that while Bond is British, the real Popov was Serbian. Popov was a ladies' man, with the green eyes, ready smile and smooth charm which drew them to him. He was 18 in 1930, and spent the next few years living a raucous lifestyle of booze, women and fast cars. He became famous around the bars and nightclubs of first Belgrade and then Freiburg in Germany, where he completed a doctorate in law. Smart too then. By the end of the decade, war had broken out, and he could think of nothing better to do than helping to defeat the Nazis, who he loathed. But Popov wasn't the classic military type and didn't fancy crawling through the mud, braving rough seas or flying through flak. No, Popov had a better idea. In 1940, he got in touch with British intelligence. He told them all about his business connections throughout Europe, which would enable him to move freely around the continent, and about his hatred of everything Nazi. The British liked the sound of this, checked Popov out and quickly enrolled him as an agent. They then gave him a bunch of false information that would convince German military intelligence, the Abwehr, that he was actually a committed National Socialist. Adopting his best Aryan aura, he fed the Abwehr the critical but nonsense information the Brits had given him and asked to join up. Happily for everyone but the Abwehr, they took the bait and Dusko Popov was suddenly a wartime double agent, working for the Germans, but in fact 
really spying for the British. Popov immediately got to work, passing useful information to his British handlers while feeding false or harmless material back to the Germans. The Nazis, completely in the dark, were delighted with what Popov was giving them, and so delighted that they asked him to go to the United States to set up a network of spies there. But before he went, he spent a little night at the Casino Estoril in Portugal. He had with him £50,000 stolen from the Germans and supposed to be passed to the British. But instead, he used it to play roulette. Legend has it that he placed a bet worth £1.4 million in today's money and won. Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond and an officer in the Royal Navy at the time, watched the whole thing with amused fascination. Needless to say, Popov had women as well as money dripping from him. His codename, Tricycle, is said to have been given to him in honour of his love of threesomes. When Popov did go to the US, he fell foul of FBI head J. Edgar Hoover, who hated his playboy lifestyle and distrusted his status as a double agent, even though Britain had vouched for him. It might also have had something to do with Popov dating the Hollywood movie star and bombshell Simone Simon. When Hoover found out, he demanded Popov leave the country immediately. It seems the dislike was mutual. Popov later dropped an explosive claim saying that he had told Hoover that part of the reason the Germans had sent him to the US was to gather intelligence on the American naval base at Pearl Harbor. Why? On behalf of the Japanese, who were planning a surprise attack. But Hoover never told President Roosevelt for reasons we'll never know. If indeed, the story is true in the first place. If it is true, Hoover withheld information that would have saved thousands of American lives and probably greatly shortened the Pacific War, just because he didn't like Popov. One of Popov's achievements that we are certain of is his massive contribution to Operation Fortitude, the brilliant Allied deception campaign designed to convince the Nazis that D-Day would fall anywhere but Normandy. Popov passed along critical but false information to Germany that D-Day would be commanded by General George Patton and fall on Calais. It was this information which persuaded Hitler to commit so many troops to Calais, refusing to release powerful armoured divisions even after the Normandy landings. So convinced was he that the real invasion was still to come that it wasn't until the afternoon of D-Day that Hitler allowed the divisions to move. Field Marshal Rommel, in charge of the German defences, had wanted those divisions much closer to the coast to start with and then to move them immediately. Without Popov and others like him, it's likely that Rommel would have got his way and launched immediate and potentially devastating counter-attacks against the vulnerable Allied beachheads. D-Day may well have failed. This virtuoso spy could have shortened the Pacific War and definitely shortened the European one. His charisma 
intelligence and daring do-or-die nature earned him the love of women, the hatred of his enemies and immortality in the shape of James Bond. Virginia Hall was always something of a misfit in an incredibly good way. Born into a wealthy family in Baltimore in the United States, she was raised and expected to marry within the privileged circles her parents had cultivated. But Virginia was, in her own words, capricious and cantankerous. She liked to hunt. She wanted adventure. The idea of being a housewife and mother of the early 20th century seemed dull and dreary. She was moulded differently, and she showed it even from an early age when she once went to school wearing a bracelet made of live snakes. During the 1920s, Virginia studied French, Italian, German and economics, and finished university in France, which she fell in love with. But in a hunting accident in Turkey in 1933, she shot herself in the left foot, which turned gangrenous. Without antibiotics, doctors could only save her life by amputating her left leg below the knee. Virginia had been repeatedly applying to become a diplomat with the US Foreign Service, but been turned down every time, essentially because she was a woman, and women were very rarely hired as diplomats. Now, the State Department added her disability to her gender as reasons to refuse her. Big shock, Virginia became disillusioned with that nonsense and with her low-level clerk work with US embassies and resigned. But her resilience and fortitude were undiminished and in fact emboldened by her new wooden leg, which she named Cuthbert. Virginia didn't hesitate in travelling to Paris when war broke out in Europe, where she worked as an ambulance driver in 1940. But as the German blitzkrieg swept into France, she fled to Spain. And this is where a chance encounter sent her life in the direction her dreams were made of. She met a British intelligence officer who was impressed with her and gave her the phone number of a man named Nicholas Boddington who, he said, might be able to find her suitable employment. Boddington worked for the newly created Special Operations Executive, or SOE, a secret British organisation dedicated to espionage, sabotage and reconnaissance in occupied Europe. Virginia joined in the spring of 1941. She was somewhat conspicuous for a spy, a red-headed American with a strong accent and a limping wooden leg. But as one British special operative said, she had an imperturbable temper and took risks often, but intelligently. Under the cover of working as a reporter for the New York Post, Virginia was promptly sent to occupied France, basing herself in Lyon. There, she quickly hooked up with the local French resistance, helping them to organise more effectively and becoming an expert facilitator, supplying weapons and money and helping downed airmen to escape. She established the so-called Heckler network of local informants who would pass on German troop movements and activities. It turns out she was very good at it, sending bucket loads worth of invaluable intelligence back to Britain. 
but her activities were being noticed. Leon was in Vichy France, ostensibly independent, but nothing more than a German puppet state. And one of the German hands that controlled that puppet state in Leon was the head of the local Gestapo, or secret police, Klaus Barbie. Barbie was a monster. He had earlier been responsible for rounding up Jews in Amsterdam for transportation to the concentration camp at Sachsenhausen. Now he became known as the Butcher of Lyon, as he personally tortured prisoners, both adults and children. One of the men he tortured was a French resistance leader who was beaten endlessly, but still refused to give up his secrets. Barbie then had his head repeatedly immersed in buckets of ammonia and water, causing severe burns. He died of his wounds three days later. It's estimated that Klaus Barbie was directly responsible for 14,000 deaths. Barbie then was a maniacal Nazi and a ruthless killer, and he slowly became aware of a limping lady from his torture-forced confessions. He began to build a picture of how it was she, more than anyone else, who was orchestrating the resistance and foreign agents in Lyon. He once said, I would give anything to get my hands on that limping Canadian bitch. He got her nationality wrong, idiot, but I don't think he would have cared. Virginia Hall was now top of Klaus Barbie's wanted list, and she knew exactly what would happen to her if she was caught. What began was a cat-and-mouse game of life-and-death stakes. But Virginia approached everything with caution. She changed her clothes four times a day, and rarely trusted anyone who could not be vouched for by several different sources. She also had something which separates the good from the best. A finely tuned sixth sense. In October 1941, she was asked to attend a meeting of a dozen other SOE agents in Marseille. But, sensing danger, she changed her mind at the last minute, and incredibly, the meeting was then raided by French police and all 12 agents were captured and banged up in prison. Despite her personal relief, Virginia immediately swept into action, arranging for food, tools and even a wireless radio to be smuggled into the prison. While the agents began transmitting to London from within the jail, one of the tools enabled the prisoners to make a key from sardine tins. In July the following year, they used that key to escape. Virginia had vehicles, safe houses and trusted people ready for them. The official historian of the SOE, Michael Foote, described the escape as one of the war's most useful operations of its kind, because several of those agents returned to France after evading the major German manhunt, setting up highly successful resistance networks. Klaus, of course, was furious. The Gestapo flooded the area with 500 agents, while the Abwehr did the same. Their aim was nothing short of the total dismantlement of the French resistance and SOE networks in Lyon. 
and most importantly for Klaus, the capture of the limping lady. The noose began to close when an Abwehr agent infiltrated a separate but close network, destroying it, and then began to do the same with Virginia's own. The United States' entry into the war at the end of 1941 had made her cover useless, and she was forced ever further underground, making her life miserable and her job ever more dangerous. And when the Allies invaded Morocco and Algeria in November 1942, the Germans quickly moved to formally occupy Vichy France. Now, Virginia Hall's danger radar went through the roof. Klaus was describing her as the Allies' most dangerous spy. The Germans were crawling everywhere, and an Abwehr agent was closing in. It was time to get out. She fled Lyon without telling even her closest confidants, first travelling by train to Perpignan on the Spanish border, and then walked, Cuthbert and all, over a seven and a half thousand foot pass through the Pyrenees Mountains to Spain. Before she'd left, she sent a message to SOE in London saying that she hoped Cuthbert would not trouble her on her journey. SOE, not knowing who Cuthbert was, replied back, If Cuthbert troublesome, eliminate him. She managed to make good her escape, returning eventually to Britain. But SOE refused to send her back despite her many requests. She was compromised, they said. But ever the daredevil, she went back anyway, this time with a United States equivalent of SOE, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, in 1944. She spent the remainder of the war arming and training resistance groups and disguising herself as a shuffling old woman. She even filed down her own teeth to aid the deception. The groups she trained and supported cleared out the Germans of whole areas of France, even before the liberating allies arrived. Her disguise, natural caution and uncanny sixth sense allowed her to survive the war while so many of her colleagues were killed or sent to die in concentration camps. In the post-war period, Virginia Hall continued working in intelligence, helping to stop the spread of communism in Europe. Incredibly though, her former nemesis, Klaus Barbie, was also recruited by the United States and worked for the Army Counterintelligence Corps, again in the anti-communist effort. His is a long story, but he was eventually brought to justice in France in 1987, where he was sentenced to life imprisonment. He died of cancer just four years afterwards. The US later apologised to France for shielding him from justice for 33 years. As maddening as Barbie's near escape from justice is, Virginia Hall got the better of him, and it's some consolation that that snake bracelet-wearing, one-legged, teeth-filing, jail-breaking badass flaunted herself under his nose for so long. And that must have seriously irritated him for the rest of his sorry life. Virginia Hall and Dusko Popov were just two of thousands of Allied spies during World War II. 
their stories are remarkable, but incredibly not unique. Beyond the idealised glamour of the world of spies, thousands of agents risked torture and death, and lived daily life on the edge in an existence which must have been fraught with constant wariness and caution. Many, many of them were killed. Their contribution to the Allied war effort mustn't ever be forgotten, because it's certain that without them the war would have been much longer, much harder and much, much deadlier. Join us next time for one of history's most able spymasters, one of the men that modern intelligence gathering still learns from today, hundreds of years later. He was responsible for the entrapment and execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, of foiling several plots against England's Queen Elizabeth I, and of warning of the threat of the vast Spanish Armada. The name of this intelligence-gathering pioneer and agent provocateur was Francis Walsingham. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.